Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Political Crisis of the 1850s. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Debate Renewed. The antebellum era refers to the period before the Civil War, but people at that time did not use that word, because they did not know that the war was coming. As a result of the Mexican-American War, the United States had acquired a great deal of new territory, and this led to more debate about slavery's expansion to these areas. Many Northerners did not want slavery to expand into the new Western territories called the Mexican Cession, and this was not for moral reasons, rather economic, over competition. Farmers with slaves could outcompete white small farmers who did not have slaves, and many Northerners championed the ideology of free labor. Going forward, more and more Northerners expressed resentment toward the so-called slaveocracy. Many Northerners believed that the South had an undue amount of influence in the federal government due to the Three-Fifths Compromise. To back this up, Southerners had dominated the presidency for decades, while others believed that there was a secret conspiracy by the South to spread slavery not just to the territories, but to the entire nation. So we see both sides believing in conspiracy theories which will demonize their opponents, and this makes it more likely to radicalize people to get them to kill one another. Lastly, the first immediate issue that will result from this territory is whether or not California should become a state in 1849 and closely related to this topic was what to do about New Mexico and Utah territories. The election of 1848 will center around this debate. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1848. The Whig Party nominated Zachary Taylor, the military hero of Buena Vista. He was non-committal on the slavery issue, but he did own slaves on a Louisiana sugar plantation. His supporters made sure that he did not say anything provocative and played up his military record. Facing Taylor was the New Yorker Lewis Cass, who you don't really need to know anything about. In this election, we also see the creation of a brand new party, the heir to the previous Liberty Party called the Free Soil Party. This was a coalition of Northern anti-slavery candidates, Whigs, Democrats, Liberty Party men, and those in the North who distrusted Cass and Taylor. They supported the Wilmot Proviso. The Proviso stated that it was against slavery in the territories and in favor of, quote, free soil, free speech, free labor, and free men, end quote. They advocated federal aid for internal improvements as well as free government homesteads to settlers headed west. Van Buren was nominated as the Free Soil Candidate. So, it is interesting to note that the man who helped build the Democratic Party coalition and the Second American Party system as a way to dodge the issue of slavery is now involved in this debate. This party will foreshadow the emergence of the Republican Party six years later. The results of the election was Taylor won 163 electoral votes to 127 for Cass, and zero for Van Buren. 
Free Soilers won no states and did not overly affect the outcome of this election. Please advance to the next slide entitled California Statehood. The question over California statehood brought out intense disagreements that had been simmering for years. After gold was discovered in 1848 at Sutter's Mill, masses of adventurers flocked to Northern California. Gold essentially paved the way for the rapid economic growth of California. San Francisco sprouted up in just months. Northern California became the state's main population center, and by 1850, California's population had grown from 14,000 to over 100,000 people in just two years. As a result, California drafted a constitution in 1849 which excluded slavery and asked Congress for admission. Congress decided that California would bypass the territorial phase, blocking Southern chances to spread slavery. Southerners vigorously opposed California statehood as they saw another free state as a threat. Remember, the sectional balance in 1850 was key, as there was 15 free and 15 slave states. However, the South already had the presidency, a majority in cabinet, and a majority in the Supreme Court, as well as an equal number of states in the Senate, and thus they had strong veto power. Despite this, the South still worried. A free California could tip the balance in the Senate and set a free state precedent in the Southwest since New Mexico and Utah seemingly lean towards free state status. Another issue arose from the fact that Texas claimed the vast area east of the Rio Grande River, encompassing modern-day New Mexico, Colorado, Kansas, and Oklahoma, and also threatened to seize Santa Fe. Southerners were also angry that the North demanded the abolition of slavery in Washington, D.C., because slaves in the state capital is not a good look. Southerners were also upset over the loss of runaway slaves who fled to the North and were aided and abetted by some abolitionists. When California applied for statehood, Southern fire eaters threatened secession. Please advance to the next slide, entitled the road to compromise. This last compromise will be the sunset of the Great Triumvirate. Henry Clay initiated his third Great Compromise. He believed the North and South should compromise, with the North enacting more effective fugitive slave legislation. This was supported by Stephen Douglas, the Little Giant. John C. Calhoun, who was dying of tuberculosis, rejected Clay's position as not having adequate safeguards to protect slavery. In a speech before Congress that had to be read for him because he was dying, he demanded that the country leave slavery alone, return runaway slaves, give the South rights as minority or concurrent majority, and restore the political balance. Otherwise, they would fight. Webster supported Clay's compromise and gave his famous 7th of March speech of 1850. He urged all reasonable concessions to the South, including tough fugitive laws. He discouraged legislating on the territories since the climate prevented cotton in the new territories. And he ended by saying, quote, And now, Mr. President, instead of speaking of the possibility or utility of secession, instead of dwelling on those caverns of darkness, instead of groping with those ideas so full of all that is horrid and horrible, 
Let us come into the light of day. Let us enjoy the fresh air of liberty and union. Let us cherish these hopes. Let us devote ourselves to those great objects that are fit for consideration and action. Let us raise our conceptions to the magnitude and the importance of the duties that devolve upon us. Let our comprehension be as broad as the country for which we act, our aspirations as high as its certain destiny. Let us not be pygmies in a case that calls for great men." The significance of this speech is that it turned the North towards compromise, but it also ruined Webster's career. Abolitionists assailed Webster as a traitor since they had regarded him as one of their own. But Webster despised abolitionists, despite being favor of anti-slavery, and he was pro-union, which means he never joined them. An example of those who opposed Webster was William H. Seward, nicknamed Higher Law Seward by his adversaries. He was a young Northern radical who was against concession. He stated that Christian legislatures must obey God's moral law as well as man's law. Slavery should be excluded from the territories due to the higher law of God over the Constitution. President Taylor, swayed by Seward, seemed against concessions to the South. Taylor determined to send troops to Texas if the Texans armed themselves against New Mexico. He would lead the army personally and hang, quote, all damned traitors, which is a very Jacksonian thing to do. This would have started a civil war in 1850, and southern states would have defended Texas. But Taylor died by eating peaches and creams on July 9, 1850, and thus helped the cause of compromise. Vice President Millard Fillmore assumed the presidency and signed the Compromise of 1850, and Stephen Douglas was the most important legislator in getting this bill passed through Congress. Please advance to the next slide entitled Compromise. The Compromise of 1850 was an omnibus legislation passed in separate parts. California was admitted as a free state. The abolition of the slave trade in the District of Columbia was enacted. Popular sovereignty would be in place for the remainder of the Mexican section, and Congress passed more stringent fugitive slave laws. The South wanted this because the old law passed by Congress in 1793 seemed inadequate to deal with the problem of runaways, as about 1,000 African Americans successfully escaped from slavery each year. While this was small in number, Southerners were infuriated in principle and stated that the Constitution was not being obeyed. The last part of this deal is that Texas received $10 million from the federal government as compensation for its surrendering the disputed territory of New Mexico and Arizona. In the end, the North got the better deal. California tipped the Senate in favor of the free states. Popular sovereignty in New Mexico and Utah territories probably favored the North since it was mostly desert. The $10 million paid to Texas was a modest sum, and the halt of the slave trade in Washington, D.C. was a step towards emancipating it. Some historians argue that the Compromise of 1850 won the Civil War for the North. It bought 10 precious years to expand economic growth and the sentiment of the Union cause. Many Northerners would have been unwilling to go to war in 1850 over the Union, but the inflammatory events of the 1850s 
brought Northern willingness to resist secession. Please advance to the next slide entitled Resistance. The Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution had been a point of contention for many Northerners. In 1788 and 1826, Pennsylvania passed two laws forbidding the removal of African Americans from the state to enslave them. This was tested in the famous decision called Prigg v. Pennsylvania in 1842. Judge Story found that two Pennsylvania laws violated the federal government's Fugitive Slave Law of 1793, but it also said that federal officers, not state ones, would aid slave catchers. So, the peace was held for nearly eight years until the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law. This became the single most important frictional issue between North and South in the 1850s because it said states had to help federal officials return escaped slaves. Cries of states' rights in the North filled the headlines. Why should Northerners have to spend their money and use their officials to aid Southern sin? The abolitionist movement was given a big boost by the so-called Bloodhound Bill. This spurred the Northern spirit of antagonism toward the South, and Southerners were infuriated that the law was not executed in good faith. The Fugitive Slave Act led directly to 20,000 free blacks and fugitives living in the Northern states moved into Canada between 1850 to 1857. Federal magistrates under the Fugitive Slave Law were paid $10 for every slave they convicted and returned, and $5 for every acquittal. Now, do you think justice will be blind, or will someone be greedy and think of lining their pocketbook instead of respecting human dignity? At these trials, slaves could not testify in their own behalf and were denied a jury. Heavy fines and jail sentences were applied to those who aided and abetted runaways in some states, refused entirely to accept the Fugitive Slave Law. Massachusetts made it illegal to enforce it, which was a move towards nullification. Other northern states passed personal liberty laws. These were state laws which prohibited state officials from assisting anyone pursuing runaway slaves and did not allow them to use local jails. Southerners were outraged by this. Unfriendly state authorities were failing to provide needed cooperation, in their opinion. And Southerners blamed abolitionists and claimed they operated outside the law. How would the courts respond to this? We will get to that in a minute. Another mode of resistance to the Fugitive Slave Law was the Underground Railroad, which consisted of an informal chain of anti-slavery homes which hundreds of slaves, aided by black and white Americans, were shepherded to Free Soil Canada. Harriet Tubman, known as Moses, was an ex-slave from Maryland who helped many escape to Canada. She led 19 different expeditions from her farm and rescued over 300 slaves, including her parents. Later, she served in the Union Army in South Carolina during the Civil War. A lesser-known member of the Underground Railroad is Jermaine Logan, an African-American preacher who led hundreds of slaves to their freedom, and was prosecuted for his assistance. In a way, Uncle Tom's Cabin is also resistance to the Fugitive Slave Law, as it brought the barbarity of Southern slavery into Northern homes. Another form of resistance is Fugitive Slave Rescues. 
An example of this is William McHenry in Syracuse, New York, who when he was captured by a slave catcher, he killed one of them and fled to Canada with Jermaine Logan's help. Another example is Sadrach Minkins, who was a fugitive slave from Virginia and worked in a coffee house in Boston in early 1852. When he was caught and jailed by slave catchers, but then was broken out of jail by an abolitionist mob led by an escaped slave, Lewis Hayden, himself a fugitive slave from Kentucky. They killed one of the slave catchers, and later, Hayden dared magistrates to come and get him at his home, where he had a posse assembled, as well as a keg of gunpowder, and he claimed that he would blow them all up if anyone came too close. Another example occurred at Christiana, Pennsylvania, where a slaveholder named Gorsuch cornered four of his slaves in a barn. A group of abolitionists, black and white, fought them in a gun battle. They then shepherded these slaves to upstate New York, and two of them ended up in Frederick Douglass's house in Rochester. He drove them personally in his private carriage to the local wharf, and one of the men gave him a revolver that he had used to defend himself, and it was a memento that Douglas treasured for the rest of his life. I'll give you one last example. In 1854, an escaped slave called Anthony Burns was arrested in Boston after having fled slavery in Virginia. Then, President Franklin Pierce, who we will discuss in a minute, wanted to make a strong showing in support of the Fugitive Slave Act, so he sent 3,000 federal troops to Boston to ensure that Burns was brought to trial and not freed like Minkins two or years earlier. What do you think Bostonians will think of, or what will this remind them of? That's right, the occupation of Boston by the British. Burns will be convicted and marched to the Port Wharf, while Boston citizens drape the town in black cloth in mourning. Burns is ultimately sent to Virginia, and sold to North Carolina because he is too famous. Then, by chance, he was bought by abolitionists and sent to Canada, where he died alone in 1862. So all told, with these slave rescues, how do you think Southerners will feel about this? That's right. They will be outraged and claim, what about the rule of law? And another point, though, is to make that blacks are not passive victims waiting for white saviors. No. They are active in saving their own people. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Election of 1852. Democrats nominated Franklin Pierce from New Hampshire, essentially a pro-Southern Northerner, which was acceptable to the slavery wing of the party. His campaign came out in favor of the Compromise of 1850. The Whigs nominated General Winfield Scott, old fuss and feathers. But the party was fatally split as anti-slavery men supported Scott, but hated that his campaign platform supported the Fugitive Slave Law. Southern Whigs supported the platform, but hated Scott, and questioned the loyalty to the Compromise of 1850. The result was that Pierce won 254 electoral votes to 42. And the significance is that this marks the effective end of the Whig Party, which will be completed two years later. The other significance of the Whig Party is that Webster and Clay had kept the idea of union alive, and both died in 1852. Please advance to the next slide entitled, A Hell of a Storm. For two years, the peace held, until in 1854, the issue of slavery in the West roared back to life. 
Popular sovereignty was applied to the Mexican cession, but that left one question unanswered. Would slavery be allowed in the northern, unorganized portion of the Louisiana Territory? The Missouri Compromise already said that this would be free territory. Well, Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas was interested in that region for its potential as a railroad route. This would make Illinois very wealthy if it connected it to California. But he had to organize the territory in order to do that. So, he proposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act to speed its entry into the Union. This divided the unorganized territory into two separate territories, Nebraska and Kansas. And it also abandoned the Missouri Compromise line and allowed popular sovereignty in both. The act was passed that year. The Missouri Compromise was essentially dead. Angry Northerners now really denounced the slaveocracy. Voting on this act was sectional, with Southern Whigs and Southern Democrats voting in favor of it. This upset Northern Whigs, who gave up on their Southern members, and thus the Whig Party formally disintegrated. In that summer, in 1854, the Republican Party formed for the first time. This was a coalition of former Whigs, anti-slavery Democrats, free soilers, know-nothings, and other disaffected Northerners who opposed the expansion of slavery. And this party formed as a direct response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So, the United States political system has undergone significant changes. Since the late 18th century, Americans had operated in two national parties, except during the Monroe's presidency both of which had Northern and Southern members. Slavery had been a lingering problem since the nation's inception, but the two parties had always either successfully avoided the issue or compromised. But in the 1850s, the National Party splintered into multiple, more sectional focused parties. And these sectional, issue-oriented parties were less capable of dealing with the rapidly escalating tensions of the era which would turn out to be a major problem going forward. Please turn to the next slide, entitled Tragic Prelude. Just a quick note for you to notice the one slide which says forcing slavery down a free soiler's throat, and noticing the men are standing on what's called the Democratic Platform, which has Kansas and Cuba and other references to the expansion of slavery listed there. So, cool to just look at old cartoons. Anyway. After the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Kansas would now hold elections for its territorial governor and legislature. Those elected officials would then write Kansas's constitution and determine slavery's fate there. This would have been a chaotic situation even if it was just left up to the people living there, but it was made even more crazy by an influx of individuals. Anti-slavery people came from as far away as New England, as the New England Emigrant Aid Company sent 2,000 people into Kansas to prevent slavery from taking hold, as well as to make a profit. And many came armed with breech-loading rifles, which were called Beecher's Bibles since they had been put inside boxes listed as Bibles. And this became famous after Henry Ward Beecher helps raise money for their travel. Southerners were infuriated by an apparent northern betrayal and the attempts to abolitionize Kansas. Douglas's scheme had informally implied that Kansas would become slave and Nebraska free. So armed Southerners called Border Ruffians were sent into the region, many from Missouri, though I've also seen newspaper articles as far south as Florida. These ads, written by planters, 
begged poor whites to go into Kansas and to fight for them, to thwart Northerners and expand slavery. The 1855 election in Kansas was the first for its territorial legislature. Pro-slavery border ruffians from Missouri poured into Kansas to vote repeatedly. The census of Kansas in that year was roughly 2,000-plus settlers, but the election results had over 6,000 votes. So clearly something was up. Pro-slaveryites triumphed and created a puppet government. Free Soilers ignored the bogus election and established an extra-legal government in Topeka. So now, two rival governments are in the same territory. In 1856, a gang of pro-slavery rioters shot up and burned part of Free Soil Lawrence, Kansas, though only one person died. In 1857, the Lee Compton Constitution was passed. Kansas had enough people to apply for statehood on the basis of popular sovereignty. Southerners, still in power since 1855, devised a tricky document. People were not allowed to vote for or against the Constitution as a whole, but voted for the Constitution with or without slavery. So if people voted no on slavery, slaveholders already in Kansas would be protected. And this infuriated free soilers who boycotted the polls. Pro-slavery forces won the election and approved the Constitution in late 1857. There was a federal debate on Kansas. President Buchanan supported the Lee Compton Constitution. Senator Douglas fought furiously against it, and the House defeated it. But there was a compromise. The entire Lee Compton Constitution was resubmitted to a popular vote in Kansas, but pro-slavery Kansas rejected the proposal, and Kansas statehood remained in limbo. Kansas was denied statehood until 1861, when Southern secessionists left Congress. But until then, pro-slavery Lee Compton and anti-slavery Topeka set up different governments and violence broke out. The press called this violence Bleeding Kansas. The impact on the Democratic Party was severe. Buchanan's support for Kansas split the Democratic Party along sectional lines. Republicans would win in 1860 at the expense of this split Democratic Party. Thus, one of the last strands binding the Union together, the Democratic Party, was severed. Bleeding Kansas was devastating. From 1855 to 1858, 52 people were killed, 200 wounded, and $2 million worth of property was destroyed. During Bleeding Kansas, there were atrocities on both sides. Three days after the pro-slavery attack on Lawrence, Kansas in 1856, and two days after the Sumner Brooks affair, which we will talk about in a moment, John Brown, a 56-year-old abolitionist from Connecticut, led a group of seven men who attacked several pro-slavery men living near Potahomie Creek. Five of these men's skulls were split open with broadswords, and Brown believed he was doing God's bidding. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Caning Sumner. One day before the pro-slavery attack on Lawrence, the Massachusetts Senator, Charles Sumner, one of the founders of the Republican Party, concluded a fiery two-day speech called the Crime Against Kansas in the Senate. He blamed pro-slavery forces, including a number of politicians, for the bloodshed. He did most of his finger-pointing at the 60-year-old South Carolina Senator, Andrew Butler. Sumner criticized Butler's reputation as a, quote, chivalrous knight, and accused him of embracing the, quote, harlot slavery, who, though ugly to others, 
and polluted in the sight of the world, was always lovely and chaste in his sight. End quote. Then, Sumner made fun of Butler's speech impediment. Unfortunately, not the first politician to do this. Butler wasn't even there present to defend himself. But Butler's nephew, the South Carolinian Congressman Preston S. Brooks, watched the speech from the gallery. Two days later, Brooks approached Sumner at his desk in the Senate chamber and beat him senseless with a cane. Brooks wailed over and over on Sumner, who ripped the desk out of the ground and tried to defend himself, as pro-slavery men held back Northerners who were disgusted by the violence. Sumner was so injured, he did not return to the Senate for a couple of years, since he claimed he was incapacitated. Brooks resigned from Congress, but was duly re-elected and returned to Congress before Sumner did. Northerners were outraged. Blood had been shed on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Politicians began carrying knives and pistols in case they, too, were threatened with violence. And Southerners sent Preston Brooks replacement canes. Please advance to the next slide entitled, A Victorious Defeat. In the presidential election of 1856, the Republican candidate, John C. Fremont, a famous explorer called the Pathfinder, faced off against James Buchanan, a Democrat, and the former president, Millard Fillmore, in the Know Nothing Party. Buchanan had 40 years of experience as a congressman, a cabinet member, and a diplomat. He was also a doe-face, meaning a northern man with southern principles, and was known as an appeaser, so he was the perfect guy to keep the Democratic Party together. Buchanan won, but with only 45% of the popular vote. Following their defeat, the Republicans moved to alter their strategy. Their goal was to become the main Northern Party by absorbing their rivals, the American or Know-Nothing Party. To acquire their support, they denounced, quote, lazy Irish Catholics, but not Protestant Germans or Scandinavians. Republicans also played up their opposition to the slaveocracy, as opposed to the whole South, but still, they were just a sectional party. The election of 1856 did not yield a Republican presidential victory, but it did produce a united party that, through compromise and political maneuvering, was able to emerge as the dominant new Northern Party to compete with the bitterly divided Democrats. The Republicans also learned that all they needed to do to win the next election was win three key swing states, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Illinois. And that realization will, in part, contribute to the nomination of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Regardless, Buchanan was inaugurated on March 4, 1857, and his administration would see the country tear each other apart as he did nothing. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Death of Compromise. Two days after Buchanan's inauguration, the Supreme Court ruled on the Dred Scott case. Scott was a slave who lived with his master, an army surgeon in Missouri. But at times, Scott had also lived in Illinois and Wisconsin, both free states. So following his master's death, Scott sued for his freedom. Ten years later, the case finally landed to before the Supreme Court in 1856. Seven of the nine justices on the Supreme Court were Democrats, and six of them had pro-Southern leanings. The Chief Justice, Roger Taney, was a Jackson appointee and wrote the decision. The decision had two sweeping rulings. 
The first was Scott had no right to sue in federal court because neither slaves nor free blacks were considered citizens of the United States. According to the Chief Justice, at the time the Constitution was adopted, blacks had been, quote, regarded as beings of an inferior order with no rights which a white man was bound to respect, end quote. In fact, some states did recognize free blacks as taxpayers and citizens at the time the Constitution was adopted, but Taney overlooked that. The second part of his ruling declared that any law excluding slaves from the territories was a violation of the Fifth Amendment prohibition against the seizure of property without due process of the law. So, Congress never had a right to ban slavery in the territories, nor could Congress allow territorial legislatures to ban slavery in their territories. And thus, the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional because it had prohibited slavery in the Louisiana Purchase north of the 3630 line. The Dred Scott was a massive political miscalculation. Buchanan wanted the issue of slavery's expansion to be over and done with, but instead, the court intensified sectional strife. It undercut the possibility of compromise on slavery's expansion, and it weakened the moral authority of the judiciary. In 1859, in the court case Abelman v. Booth, the Supreme Court upheld the Fugitive Slave Law. So how can you compromise when it is now illegal to do so? This ruling also confirmed Northern suspicions of a slaveocracy plot to spread slavery across the entire country. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The 1858 Midterm Elections. The race for a Senate seat in Illinois put incumbent Stephen A. Douglas against Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had previously served in the Illinois State Legislature as a member of the Whig Party in the United States Congress from 1847 to 1849, but since then he had gotten out of politics. He was lured back into politics by the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the formation of the Republican Party. In June, Lincoln spoke at an Illinois Republican convention and declared, quote, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other, end quote. So, judging by these words, does it look like Lincoln think compromise is possible? Not so much. The incumbent, Little Giant, was a formidable opponent. There were several Lincoln-Douglas debates that were held before the election. Lincoln called slavery a, quote, moral, social, and political wrong. But Douglas viewed slavery as a political issue, and Lincoln wanted him to see it as a moral issue. At a debate in Freeport, Lincoln forced Douglas to answer whether or not a territory could vote down slavery despite the Dred Scott decision. Douglas answered that territories could refuse to pass laws protecting slavery and thus effectively ending the institution in that territory. Although Douglas and others had publicly answered this question before, his position of the Freeport Doctrine would later lead his party to split in 1860 and end his chances to win the presidency. Douglas won re-election, but Lincoln impressed a lot of Republicans with his skillful debating. And the debates catapulted Lincoln into the national spotlight and became the political stepping stone to the Republican nomination in 1860. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, 
purged with blood. 1859 was a critical year. On October 16th, John Brown led a group of 21 men, black and white, to Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Brown's plan was to break into a U.S. Army arsenal, steal weapons, and give them to slaves to start a rebellion. Brown's posse captured the arsenal and 30 hostages, but no slaves joined them. The posse barricaded itself inside a brick fire engine house. The local citizens surrounded the building and were eventually joined by a company of U.S. Marines led by Robert E. Lee. The next day, the Marines stormed, killed several members of the posse, and wounded and captured Brown. Brown was imprisoned, tried, and sentenced to death. Standing in front of the judge, Brown declared, Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in the slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, submit, so let it be done. Later, as Brown walked towards the gallows, he handed a note to a guard which said, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. Speaking many years later, Frederick Douglass in 1881 said, quote, His zeal in the cause of my race was far greater than mine. It was like the burning sun to my taper light. Mine was bounded by time. His stretched away to the boundless shores of eternity. I could speak for the slave. John Brown could fight for him. I could live for the slave, but John Brown could die for him. End quote. The consequences of the raid at Harper's Ferry were numerous. There were few abolitionists in the North, and there certainly weren't many like John Brown. But Southerners perceived otherwise, and perception is often more powerful than reality. Most Northerners took a sort of praise the man but not the deed stance, while others, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, likened Brown to Christ. Another major consequence is the Southern militia system. The militia, North and South, had been a joke for years. It met infrequently and was usually just for drunken rowdiness. Southern militias were a bit more organized, but merely to facilitate their dual job as slave catchers. But as a result of Brown's raid, Southerners began taking their militia seriously in preparation for a conflict with the North that seemed just on the verge of occurring. It is in this context that the election of 1860 will take place, which will finally culminate in the election of Lincoln and the secession of the deep southern states. Well, that is all I have for you today. I hope you're all being safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.